0: So I am really glad that we get to be together today and talk through some very interesting months. These last two months have had such interesting, thought-provoking content, and I'm really excited to discuss a little bit from each month with you. I would love to start with Daniel Remain's webinar, Mm -hmm. and specifically the clip that you posted to the forum about uh his two renditions of the national anthem yeah one version is protest and one version is proclamation mm-hmm. i am curious um when you posted about it it seemed like these two variations seemed to really stick with you
1: yeah.
0: and i'm curious what you found so striking about them
1: mm-hmm. i i so appreciated his he's an artist he's a brilliant artist mm-hmm. um for those who don't know um you ought to know he's an amazing uh, black haitian american uh, composer artist teacher beautiful storyteller uh and there's something about uh his artistry his music that both captures, but also extends, expands the the words he was sharing with us. Hmm. And he was talking about protest and yeah. proclamation and forgiveness and the various stages of the journey that he's been on. Hmm. And um, he was talking about his own struggles as uh, a black American trying to make sense, uh, as so many of us are trying to make sense of the world in which we live. Mm-hmm. And then he talked about being feeling anger feeling and and doing the work of protest Hmm. and then what does it mean because you can't only stay there and so what does it mean to also think more constructively not that protest isn't constructive uh and then he so lots of ideas floating around and we're all trying to struggling to track with his brilliance Mm -hmm. and then he plays these um these different versions of the national anthem and it's just so beautiful and you get to sit back. Well, it's not all beautiful because the protest version is um there are parts of it where you're wincing a little bit, mm-hmm. not just because of um uh for lots of lots of different reasons, but in part because there's some parts that are are meant to to poke and to and to come across as shrill and mm-hmm. disturbing. Yeah. And we're not used to hearing the National Anthem that way. Right. Uh, we're used to hearing it in very calm, melodic, beautiful, lyrical um, ways. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was just hearing a, um, I think you said that hearing something familiar presented in a very different way
0: mm-hmm.
1: will stop you in your tracks and make mm-hmm. you listen. Yeah. Um, so that, so the artistic representation of that. But then his, his, uh his return to playing the national anthem in a more one might say more traditional way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: although I think if you listen carefully, I don't even know if he would agree with this. I think he might. Um, but this is related to something else we're going to be talking about. this is there's openness to different interpretations mm-hmm. and meanings one can one can extract or derive um, from these artistic expressions. But I felt like there was also something new because of the journey that he's been on. Hmm. Um, That it wasn't just a, um, how would you describe it? Uh, A stale replication of uh, traditional forms, Hmm. but there was something creative and innovative there too. And if we had more time during the webinar, it was a fascinating conversation. I just loved listening to him talk but yeah. i my, i would have wanted to have asked him about what in that other version felt different new hmm. um what were yeah what were layers there that he was trying to uh, uh what, what were meanings that he was trying to tap into there
0: yeah uh
1: but i just so beautiful artistic renditions and then uh which gave voice or ex- expression to something i think i struggle with and many people struggle with is The vacillation between protest and whether you call it proclamation or some kind of work of building up and Mm. trying to imagine Mm -hmm. um, a a better future, a creative process, because protest oftentimes is about tearing down and tearing apart. T- um and understanding interrogating existing structures yeah. so i don't know it's it feels like uh i'm babbling here but it just felt like that was a, a really helpful um break from words yeah <laughs> which i'm yeah. kind of getting lost in the midst of you know a word <laughs> soup and just beautiful music
0: hmm.
1: what about you can i ask you what what you noticed as you listened to those yes. different versions
0: absolutely Um, So I played violin growing up and the first thing I was struck by is how good he is. Uh He is an amazing violinist. So that was on the base level, like what I, the main thing I took away. Um, But also like, so I, you know, I played violin and piano and flute growing up. Like I was trained in like classical forms. Like I do not, I do not know how to improvise. Like, those things that people do on the piano in, in you know, evangelical church services, I cannot riff in any way. Mm-hmm. So the idea of doing a variation on, like, a very well-known, deeply symbolic piece of music was, like, even that was pretty revolutionary to me. But then mm-hmm. the way he did it and the way that it very clearly communicated protest to me was just mind-blowing because Mm -hmm. i had never thought that was even possible right but then he he Mm -hmm. did it and it was so effective and i and i was um exactly what you said like i think he he was able to evoke um like he was able to evoke i think the emotions that he he was hoping to get right which was like it's it's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. parts of it were uncomfortable parts of it were hard to hear and i was just i was really struck by his ability Um, yeah, just to like provoke thought and new reflection by just like riffing on a song that everyone knows. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like, you know, contrasting that version with the, you know, the proclamation version. Mm -hmm. Um, I just thought it was like, he just kind of perfectly captured how differently, some parts of our society experience the words and the promises in that song. Yeah. It was just so effective. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I just, I wish that uh, more people were able to see or hear what he did there because yeah. um, I thought it was just like a, a such, I keep using the word effective and that's so clinical, but it was like mm-hmm. such a, a a palpable and tangible way of experiencing I think something that we've been talking about as a country for like three yeah. years at this point, you know. So yeah. yeah, I was really struck by that.
1: Yeah, and and we get to uh, enjoy, revel in, and be awestruck by the music, and we don't have to choose. Like the invitation is not to choose which is mm. the correct version mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. better version. Even mm-hmm. it, the invitation is to um, to hear the differences and to reflect, to linger yeah uh, over the profundity of the differences around the very same piece. It's the yes. same piece of music, yeah, but it's um expressed so differently,
0: yes, agreed. And I think it also begs these, I mean, really interesting conversations around what it means to be a patriot, what patriotism Ooh, yes. mm-hmm. means. I'm sure that some people would take the second version as the more patriotic, but I think that yeah. is not necessarily true. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. Okay. So I wish I had done some homework on this, but the the idea of patriotism and the national anthem, mm-hmm. I believe, I believe. So Francis Scott Key, who is the the composer of mm-hmm. uh, the Sp- the Star Spangled Banner, uh-huh. like this was written um, in um, in the period of the War of eighteen twelve. So you yes. might think that this is from the Revolutionary Period. It's not. Right. The song is from the early 19th century. Uh, I don't know exactly what the date is, but it was during that um, kind of the period of the early nation. And then mm. it, I believe it didn't become the national anthem until the 20th century, mm. like 100 years later. Wow. Sometime between the First and Second World War. So that's mm. also interesting.
0: That is interesting. Yeah. Because... Truly, it has been framed to me like this is the way it's always been. <laughs> yes, yes, which also you know is a theme in, in the next uh, piece mm-hmm. that we'll talk about. But yeah, yeah, it has never it. That's wild to me that like yes, around the time my parents were born, maybe this song right. became the national anthem.
1: Exactly, and so there is the, so many efforts around commemorating, memorializing, and enshrining one's national identity, what mm-hmm. it means to be an American. Yeah. Um, and that's a historically constructed process that takes centuries. Um, and it's not from the founding period. And I think there's so many lessons for us there, too, mm. that we live with these myths that mm. um, we're still reaping the benefits of all the wisdom that burst forth into the world during mm-hmm. the revolutionary period, yeah. thanks to the heroic leadership of our founding fathers. And... Um, and it's a much more complicated history. And so, what Daniel was doing in that, in in playing, riffing on um, this really important piece of music, was continuing that work. Yeah. Um, so I I love that, and I also think sometimes we tend to put these in sort of a, a linear progression. And so, you you have a season of protest, and then you move mm-hmm. on. Like that's your period of wrestling, disgruntlement, but you come to some state of synthesis and um, a new orientation and you leave that behind for good. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that that's the case either uh, because if we don't really have to choose, if we can hold these in tension then there's something about the importance and the beauty of not looking for for resolution um, but uh, being open to all of these various experiences and expressions. Mm. So, yeah, I wish I wish more people could listen to what he did.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Um, any other thoughts about him or his webinar or the month on art and justice in yeah. general?
1: I, it was our first time doing. Um, a unit on art and justice yeah. and I'm looking forward to doing more because I think we just uh Daniel took us pretty far but we're just scratching yeah. the surface um and I'm not an artistic person so yeah. I just love <laughs> the invitation the challenge there
0: yeah yeah I really appreciated it I mean as you said this is the first time we have ever done it the first time I saw it on the calendar I was like yeah I don't know about this <laughs> <Yeah>. uh-huh. <laughs> because art you know, from like an academic perspective, art. I think sometimes people are just like, what do we, how, how, what are we doing here? But I mm-hmm. feel like as that clip illustrated, yeah, like, I feel like he was able to communicate something that like went well beyond what, you know, most of the other things that we've read or talked about this year in terms mm-hmm. of impact, right? So yeah. um, I really appreciate it. And I'm, you know, there's so many forms that we can explore in future years, right? So mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: So March focused on art and justice. And then mm-hmm. April focused on justice in a multi-faith world. Yeah. And the first week, uh, for the first week, the reading was a piece by Rachel Mikva called Christianity, yeah. the Human Equation mm-hmm. that I loved. Mm-hmm. And I am really glad that we get to talk about it today. So um, just to kind of lay the foundation of her piece um, a few vocabulary words that we should get into. Um, so you highlighted this on the forum, but in case people haven't seen it, um, three words in particular, one polysemy, the mm-hmm. idea that multiple meanings can coexist. Number 2 multivocality, the idea that many voices are more desirable than one voice and three epistemological humility, the idea that the path of spiritual wisdom requires acknowledging the limitations of our knowledge, discarding false knowledge, and openness to the wisdom of others. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about um, what strikes you about those words in general coming into this unit, or what strikes you today mm-hmm. about those words, like what stands out to you as you yeah. as we go through this unit?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't mean this. I know this is not true, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful of um, of Rachel Mikva's scholarship. I know she has integrity in the work that she has done, but it almost felt like as I was reading the chapter that she had overheard the years of conversation that we've had in the Faith and Justice Network, mm-hmm. and she basically <laughs> summed it up in a chapter. <laughs> you know, it's it was so um, it was so resonant of so many conversations that we've had. Yes. Um, so I, I had so much appreciation for the the brilliance of this chapter, and mm-hmm. I would just say this this chapter comes in the context of a a, a larger book uh, mm. called Dangerous Religious Ideas, and I would strongly mm. recommend that book to all of the listeners. There's so many great um, insights and connections that she is making in that in that book Hmm. and um and these i think these words beautifully capture the complexity of um, christian faith in our time um, but also throughout history so polysemy um, the fact that multiple meanings can coexist and sometimes when we have disagreements over interpretations and the meanings of texts and Mm -hmm. the meanings of stories um the, the goal, sometimes the goal is to come to an, a common shared understanding, but not always. And yeah. if, if where we have to stop is at a place of disagreement, it doesn't mean that we've somehow failed in our conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but that we have come to a deeper understanding of what it means to wrestle with that story and to let that story shape our imaginations. Yeah. And so we ought not always be looking for some kind of neat resolution or point of agreement um, and uh, uh, the dissolution or the, uh, the disappearance of our disagreements. So I love that, polysemy. Let multiple meanings coexist
0: Yeah.
1: and be open. It doesn't mean that we don't wrestle with the meanings of, mm-hmm. of texts and stories, but that we are um, not looking to smooth over um, differences uh, yeah. And then I think the same with motivicality and epistemological humility. Um, I don't know how much you want me to say about these words. I could go, go on for a long time. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop here and simply say that there's an invitation here to ponder the limitations of our own knowledge and experience and mm-hmm. be open to cultivating relationships and um, friendships that uh, teach us more about the world. Mm. Yeah. How uh, can I throw it back at you? What what stands out to you? And I know these are um, not new concepts to you, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. How how do they help you think about um, uh, about your own experience and the work that we're doing this month?
0: I liked that the word multivocality resurfaced. Yeah, we've talked about that in a previous episode. Yes the Mm -hmm. realization that we had that the Bible is not one cohesive whole as we were Mm -hmm. taught as kids, but it's actually a chorus of voices writing from different times and places. And that's not a fault. That's actually a strength of the book Mm -hmm. Um, because so often, or at least in my Christian evangelical experience, like there was so much, Theological gymnastics that were Mm. attempted to try to get all the different voices and all the different ideas in the Bible to form one cohesive piece. That's a pretty untenable thing to try to do because the Bible was written by so many different people from so many different contexts and it does say actually some different things and some of the things Mm -hmm. contradict and some of them contrast. And like, what do we do with that? Yeah. And realizing that, that that that's not a weakness; that's actually um, a strength of it. And mm-hmm. we should stop trying to force yeah. all of the all of it to say one thing because it doesn't. And yeah. I think that was like a really critical step for me in terms of my understanding of the Bible and Christianity mm-hmm. more broadly. You know. Yeah. Um, and then there's this line from page 61 that jumped out to me that I would love to read because I feel mm-hmm. like it just punched me right in the face. Um, she writes, many scholars ascribe the pressure to standardize faith and practice to Roman imperial culture after Christianity became the official religion of the empire. It pressed administratively for uniformity and order. Emphasizing the role that the empire the I, played in settling the great theological debates. Charles Freeman argued that his actions were motivated by politics rather than theology, mm-hmm. an exertion of his will to power by co-opting the power of religion. Mm-hmm. So again, she's talking here about this attempt to take all of the multiple meetings and all of the multiple voices of the Bible and try to make them, the, try, try to come have like a one uniform understanding and one uniform practice yeah. in the holy roman empire but it 100 percent could have been written today i feel like about oh, the yeah. american evangelical church um Absolutely. like the idea that like we all have to come to one common agreement and understanding there is only one correct answer only one of these is right and anything else any other interpretation is unacceptable yeah and um I was having a conversation with some friends last week about this idea that I heard Nadia Bowles Weber say, she's a mm-hmm. prominent Lutheran pastor um, yeah. in Denver, about how she doesn't think that belief is a prerequisite to belonging. Mm. And I love that so much. She said this in an episode of Fresh Air. She's talking with Terry Gross. She's talking about she doesn't really care what her parishioners believe. Um, and I, I was just so struck by this. And I really appreciated it so much yeah. because why, why does a church or any faith community require adherence to a specific set of beliefs as a requirement for belonging or for joining, yeah. right? Yeah. And when I, when I follow this line of questioning, I just end up at control, mm. right? Where like consciously or unconsciously leaders want uniformity of belief because then the group is easier to control or to manage. Um, I mean, that's been true of like most of my experiences in churches. Again, I, I don't think it's conscious a lot of the time, right? I don't think that leaders are out there scheming for power, but I think that, you know, it is just easier to manage a group when everybody believes the same thing. And it gives the leader that much more power and authority when everybody believes what they believe. Right. So, um, And just to see that reflected so clearly in this quote that Mikva shares about how um, that's exactly what the Roman Empire was doing, right? Right. Like they were trying to impose one interpretation in practice of all these things because then it created uniformity and order right? um, and uh, submission to one leader. Yeah. So wow. I was curious um what you thought because this, this quote just like stood out so clearly yeah. to me and I, I'm curious yeah. if it had any similar effects on you.
1: Yeah. What well, um thank you for those reflections. I think it, it is really staggering and sobering to think about uh the implications of this, if this is true. Because mm. I think you're right. Like most individuals may, I mean there are people who are who are trying who are out to get power, that's their primary objective. Uh, We can think of many examples in our day of -hmm. people like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But even if you are motivated by a genuine desire to be faithful to Mm. um, the text, the tradition, uh, the religious uh, belief system, um, you're going to be entangled in these political uh, maneuverings and uh, machinations, mm-hmm. and then what happens over time when you're a generation or two or dozens of generation removed from that, and and the and the craft that builds up over over time? How do you how do you get through the unpacking and the um, uh, deconstruction of all those various? Um, generational pieces. And so Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's the fact that it's not just individuals in our time, but if this has been happening throughout history, that just really, that's breathtaking. The scope of uh, power grabbing Mm -hmm. and um, systems of oppression and um, control that Mm -hmm. are in place. Where do we even begin? Uh, so I, I don't know. It's a sobering and discouraging thought.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's like whenever Christianity gets tied up with empire, yeah, it gets corrupted. I mean, whenever anything gets tied up with empire, it gets corrupted. Right. And so I yeah. guess like my question is like what, I mean, it seems like Christianity is intended for people on the margins. Right. And mm-hmm. it was written, it was all of the, you know. The one fairly consistent thing throughout the Bible or one of the consistent things throughout the Bible is that like, it's, it's written for marginalized people. So then what happens then when it becomes the religion of empire, you know, it just, it doesn't really work. And so like, what, what is, so what does that mean? You know, like, Mm -hmm. um, that was a real tension for me in my evangelical days. I was like, you know, if our goal is to make disciples of all nations, but then uh, the, but then every time we get Christians get power, yeah, things go wrong. So like, what is the, what does this even mean? You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it seems like our our goals here are like in direct conflict with each other. Um, I think maybe what I really just want to say is that it just seems like the idea of like, like Christianity is like at its truest when it's for marginalized people, and like when it yeah. when it ends up in the hands of empire, like yeah, everything gets corrupted. Yeah, you know.
1: Yeah, and there's something about listening to the voices, not only to your own inner voice, which I know it sounds um, very dangerous to to many Christians, but listening to your inner and we've talked plenty about this. But also in terms of multivocality, listening to the voices of others. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and and it's especially these days, I'm thinking about listening to the um the voices of younger generations. So, mm. uh, quick story. We yeah. had um, just a couple of nights ago um, around the dinner table, we had this conversation about, I was talking about complementarianism with my family. I don't know wow. why it came up, how wow. it came up. Wow,
0: incredibly casual conversation, <laughs> yes. pastor-kid conversation. So
1: complementarianism, if you don't know, is it's just a word that represents um, traditional uh, beliefs about gender roles <laughs> and that uh, male and female because, uh, you know, those are the two genders, <laughs> um, have um, roles that are appropriate to those genders. And so that's why it, this is the the rationale behind why women are not supposed to be teachers or preachers or leaders in church context. And so we were having this conversation. I was probably going on. And then our youngest <laughs> um, interrupted me <laughs> and uh-huh. wanted to say something about you know his day, and then I was uh-huh. like, "Wait a minute, I'm not done yet." <laughs> you know, uh-huh. he got really frustrated about being, uh, not being able to speak, and then I said, "Well, this is this is actually a, a perfect example of what complementarianism is. Imagine being told that you can't, that your voice can't ever be heard, that you have to be silent forever mm-hmm. in a church context." And then mm-hmm. my two other sons were like, "Oh, he, you know, Dad got you on that <laughs> one. <laughs> it's like the perfect perfect timing." Um, but our youngest, he like, he really thought about that because it was mm. shocking. Instead of being indignant and upset about not being able to speak, which would have been his normal response, he like that the weight of like he couldn't wrap his mind around because mm. he knows church. He goes yeah. to church yeah. sometimes, <laughs> and he was like. Like, what does that mean? Like, mm. why would anyone think that? That's yeah. horrible. Yeah. Like, never? You're never allowed to speak in church? Mm. And then um, I think, I, so one, I was very impressed by his inability to grasp the sense, the logic in that. Mm. And I think there's more work that I could do in um in trying to understand how he views the world and why Mm. it just does not at all sit right with him instinctively he knows
0: yeah Uh, and
1: so so Mm. much that i could learn from him in that regard yeah So that was a, (laughs) yes, even though I was indignant about being interrupted, that was a sobering and that was a teaching moment for me.
0: Yeah. Oh, and way to be quick on your feet to like make that (laughs) comparison. I don't know that I would have been able to catch it that quickly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think it's one thing to, to like learn from, I feel like learning from kids like people are open to learning from kids but i think about like gen z for example and like i we have so much mm-hmm. to learn from gen z right yeah. even though i feel like as a as an elder millennial it's hard sometimes <laughs> because not, not only am i an elder millennial i'm now middle aged and mm-hmm. i've developed some real like i'm like leaning all the way into my middle age right mm-hmm. and um yeah, but I I, and I, I feel like some of – culturally, some of the ideas that they espouse are, like, very different and hard – like, so counter to the way that I was raised, but, like, we have so much to yeah. learn, you know? Yes. So, yeah.
1: Well, um, what a great, great hopeful note on which to <laughs> wrap up this conversation.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just – and I wish – God, I wish that, like – I wish that this was the posture – that Christianity mm-hmm. like took, you know what I mean? That this was the posture that people like an, an openness to learning and to new experiences. Right. Um, and an acknowledgement that like, we just like can't know everything. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. we also, we don't have a monopoly on truth. There are some things that we simply cannot know. And like just the idea of being open to like other people's experiences um, listening to our own experiences. Cause I feel like that's so often something that people are trained out of, that people are really taught to distrust their own experiences. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think that like, uh, I, I don't know. I just, I just feel like people would be, I would be a lot more comfortable with Christianity. I think a lot of people would be a lot more comfortable with Christianity. Um, yeah. if it had this kind of humility you know, yes. it was marked by humility, which is like ironic yeah. because I feel like Jesus marked by humility. But when people think about Christianity, that's not what they think of because it's not the posture that the church is generally taken in America. So, yeah.
1: There's so much we don't know, and so there's so
0: much we don't know.
1: So don't be a jerk about it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. I'm so glad that we got to talk about such a wide range of things today yeah and um yeah i hope for us and for anybody who's listening that we just like have this posture of humility and openness to new experiences and a keen awareness of the limitations of our own knowledge and understanding as we walk around the world